Welcome to Talent First. Talent First is brought to you by Edmonton Group Talent Access and hosted by me, Michelle Edmondson, Managing Partner for Cybersecurity Search. This season of Talent First showcases the incredible work of cybersecurity leaders across the UK, US and Australia. And my guests discuss a range of topics from how to become a business partner to the exec, how to close the skills gap, and of course, we discuss how to engage and attract the very best in cybersecurity talent. This episode is a departure from the CISO season, but a discussion that I very much enjoyed and learned a lot from. I speak to Anmol Agarwal about her fascinating career in tech, how she progressed in AI, her doctoral degree, and the very real threats of adversarial machine learning. Although we did spend time talking about the threat, she does offer some great advice for companies looking to adopt enterprise-level AI and dispel some of the myths surrounding this iteration of tech. As ever, hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to Talent First, and thank you for contacting me to appear as a guest. I've learned a lot about your chosen topic of conversation already, uh, and I know it's something I'm going to need to know far more about. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem at all. I'm really looking forward to, to this and, like I say, learning an awful lot from you as well. So I always start by talking to people about their career so far and kind of what led you to this point in your career. Right. So I studied computer science, but I didn't actually think I would be in cybersecurity. So I initially thought when I studied computer science, I would be like everyone else and just become a software engineer. But then during my first internship, I suddenly got inspired to pursue cybersecurity. So at the time, I was working in a lab of maybe 20 software developers. And all of these software developers were working on teams to basically code all of these different apps. But no one was really paying attention to the security aspect as much. So, and we had a security engineer and the security engineer said over the summer that we need to have secure coding practices. And he demonstrated some of the common cybersecurity attacks. So initially everyone in the software team saw security as a hindrance. It's something that we find very boring. It's very difficult to follow. But I really like the seminar the security engineer gave. It basically showed us how an SQL injection works, how you need to sanitize the input in your database, you know, basic ideas like that. And from that seminar, I was inspired to pursue cybersecurity. So fast forward to grad school, I decided to take cybersecurity courses and do my master's degree in computer science. Then from that, I decided I really like cybersecurity. Let me go into AI security. How did I actually decide to go into AI security? Well, it was because over the summer, another summer, so let's say the summer after I started grad school, so the first summer, I decided to attend a conference called IEEE SNP or IEEE Security and Privacy Symposium. If you're familiar with the field, you'll know it's a very top academic conference. When I attended that conference, I realized all of the research topics I was very interested in were related to the same topic, pretty much. AI, adversarial machine learning. So once I once I decided that's really what I'm interested in. 
I worked that summer with the university research lab. I decided to work in the big data analytics and management research lab on campus. This research lab was basically going over AI and machine learning and how to apply it to cybersecurity. So now I'm currently a AI security researcher and I work at Nokia. And my job is to basically secure AI and machine learning from different security attacks in 5G and 6G. But I don't think I would have been inspired to pursue this path if it wasn't for the experiences with internships and grad school. Has this all been a bit of a, I mean, the cliche roller coaster, but, you know, yeah. has it all been a quite, quite a quick process for you from your interest in tech, cybersecurity, AI? Has it been, you know, quite a rapid progression? So for me, people might not know this, but I actually started as a business major. So I didn't actually know I wanted to be a technical person at all. I would say it's just been kind of a series of steps that worked out. Sometimes in life, you don't really know where you're going. And then suddenly something happens and you decide, oh, I want to do this now. So that's really what happened to me. I mean, initially as a business major, I was really impressed by economics and, and very different areas. But during one of the lectures, one of my professors actually said, the future is in tech, all this innovation you know, we're going to have nanobots injected inside us. <laughs> so I really wanted to be at that. I wanted to be at the forefront of innovation. And that's really how I decided to study tech. But I didn't really know when I started out, this is what I wanted to do. It just kind of happened without me planning it. And I think it's really important for, you know, especially younger members of the Talent First audience to hear is that you don't necessarily have to start with a cybersecurity degree or a computer science degree. And the fact that you've come from a business degree means that when you climb the ranks, you get into those management roles, you're going to be able to have those kind of business conversations with the C-suite rather than just coming at it from a, a technical point of view, which I think is going to be fantastic for your career as well. So, so I think it's really important that, that, and I've been talking a lot about this in these podcasts as well, is it doesn't have to be that traditional routine. Have you found that to be helpful in your kind of dealings with people even now, your business background? Right. It has definitely been helpful. So I have an ability to communicate with non-technical audiences because I remember what it was like when I didn't know anything about computers. I had never programmed until my junior year or third year of college. So it wasn't until two or three years in university that I started computer science. So it's definitely helped me. Tell us a bit more about your master's degree then, so and your doctorate and so on. And you can back me with science, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> and I'll just nod and smile. So I did a master's degree in computer science, and I think the biggest achievement was, as I mentioned earlier, working with that big data analytics research lab. So the research that I worked on in the lab was basically using advanced persistent threat detection. So what we were doing was we were analyzing the attack traces of the different data that we received and then mapping out the data provenance, basically mapping out the origins of the data, the history of the data, how these events were occurring. And then from that, we proposed a machine learning algorithm to basically detect advanced persistent threats, which as those in the cybersecurity community might be aware, it's not easy to do that. So we just proposed a research idea of here's how you could detect these threats um, using data provenance. 
And then the doctoral degree, I actually started it later on while I was working. And in my doctoral degree, I focused on adversarial machine learning, which is basically the study of attacks and defenses against machine learning models or AI for people who are not aware of machine learning. So AI and machine learning are typically combined into the same thing. So in my research for my doctoral degree, I looked at federated learning. Federated learning is basically a machine learning framework that is privacy preserving. What it does is it combines all these updates from different, you could say, hospitals, organizations, different data sets, basically. And it combines these and one way is a centralized server. So we typically know in machine learning, there's a centralized server and we have different clients, right? And they send all this data to the server. So in federated learning, it's sending these updates to that central server. But the difference is the server is not holding the data sets. It's not a storage solution. It's just a way for you to combine all these updates. And they're also sometimes encrypting these updates to the server so someone cannot intercept what these clients are saying to the server. So I think that's another growing research area in the field. And to give you an example of when this might be used, let's say, for example, for COVID-19 research, we had different hospitals studying the virus, right? Different hospitals were doing their own research. Obviously, this data is very sensitive, all this patient data, you know, personally identifiable information. So these hospitals could potentially use federated learning and they have, according to research papers, they've used federated learning to basically combine all of these updates. Let's say hospital A and hospital B, they want to create their own machine learning model combining both of their updates. So they send these updates to a federated learning server federated learning server is able to see not the data from hospital A and hospital B, but rather updates to a machine learning model. So the they are collaborating on the machine learning model itself and not the data. So and, and that's basically how you can design something that's more privacy preserving in the industry. And I think this is something that's now growing in the industry. So we typically only talk about it right now in academia and academic settings, but it's a growing research and development topic. And, and that's what I worked on in the doctoral degree. I really sometimes wonder what I've been doing with my time, honestly. Um, I just think that's uh, fascinating. And I'd just like to move to, on to talk about, so when you first contacted me and you presented me with this concept about which I knew well, nothing, and I still know very little. I mean, I've done my research and that's adversarial machine learning. So could you just explain the key concepts of this and, and also maybe talk about some of the potential impacts as well? So adversarial machine learning, um, the official definition is the study of attacks and defenses against machine learning. So that, that's the official definition. So my research has really focused on the adversarial machine learning attacks. Some examples of these attacks are a poisoning attack, which I think people have heard of. If you look up adversarial machine learning, that's typically one of the first attacks that show up is poisoning attack. What a poisoning attack is, is it's basically you're injecting bad training data into the machine learning model. So for those who don't know how machine learning works, machine learning, you're, you have data sets to train the model and to test the model. 
So at a high level, you basically need certain data to train the model to actually develop it. So it knows, okay, I see these patterns in the data set, and that's how I can learn what those patterns mean. And then you also need to test it on other data to evaluate whether your model is working or not. So in poisoning attacks, what they're doing is they're basically modifying the training data, the data you're using to develop the model. Injecting bad data, an example from research that I always like using is we have stop signs and speed limit signs. Let's say we have a self-driving car and it wants to detect a stop sign or a speed limit sign. So you could inject bad training data and say that a stop sign is actually a speed limit sign. And then from that, the model will not recognize what a stop sign is because it, it learns the incorrect information. So that's an example of a poisoning attack. And then to give you an example of another attack that is considered an adversarial machine learning attack, it's something called a membership inference attack. So in this attack, what we're basically doing is we're saying that in machine learning models, when we send the model a question, let's say, you know, give me information, is this an image of a plant, for example, let's say our model is just categorizing different images saying whether it's a plant or not. If I query the model, I say, give me the answer, is this an image of a plant or not? So I don't have pictures in front of me right now, so I'll try to explain it verbally. But let's say you query the model and I send it a picture of a certain type of plant and it says, yes, this is a plant. Now let's say I send it a picture of another kind of plant, completely different. Like let's say I send it a picture of a different color of plant and then it says, no, this is not a plant. Well, you can actually do this and you can say, okay, it recognized my first picture was a plant and the second picture was not a plant, right? So then what it's saying is you can determine that the training data was actually of type A or the first picture of plants and not trained on the second picture of plant. So that's a really benign example, but let's imagine a more extreme scenario, right? Let's say this is patients in a hospital and your machine learning model is basically categorizing patients, whether they have a disease like cancer. Now that's very, very sensitive. We don't want that to get out. But let's say you could potentially query the model and say, you know, tell me, is this patient record at, at this hospital, are they, you know, do they have this disease? And it could say yes. And then maybe a patient in another hospital, you query the model and it says, no, this patient is not in, in our database. So that's an extreme example. But basically, you can use this attack to infer the members in your data set, which could lead to privacy concerns when it comes to you know, the medical field, maybe sensitive information like ethnic data, nationality, gender. So information you don't want to leak. So those are some kinds of examples of adversarial machine learning attacks. And in terms of the impact itself, I mean, it can have devastating impacts depending on what you're using machine learning for. It could cause loss of life, maybe, if your model is trying to detect whether someone has cancer or not or whether someone has a disease or not, maybe you could cause it to have 
a false diagnosis, and then that could cause loss of life. So yes, it definitely does have a lot of impact. And I guess in an industry like financial services, for instance, if a, a kind of attack was used against a bank or some other financial institution, again, that could have devastating effects, right? Right, it could definitely. And anyway, so just explain to me. So let's say we've got a major bank and suffers this kind of attack. You know, what could be the consequences of that? So let's say, you know, it's a major bank. I'm, you can first use adversarial machine learning to attack the model itself. I actually noticed this happened to a family member. So someone, she has a small business and someone who she paid money to via check, they were able to cash this check 10 times, even though it was the same exact check. And how did they do this? They actually just changed the check number with a pen. They changed the number on the check. They modified the amount. Like instead of $100, they changed it to $1,000. You know, that's an example. They just changed small features of the check. And then the bank, which is a major bank in the U.S., could not actually detect that this is fraud and and did cash out the check 10 times. You know, so it, it can cause definitely a lot of financial ruin and Maybe if it's a major bank, that could cause you know, economic collapse even. So how can companies kind of protect themselves against this then? So you know, if we talk about the intersection of AI and cybersecurity, how can they possibly keep up with these bad actors who are not necessarily, I mean, that's a very simple thing. The simplicity of that is amazing, really. Right. So how can companies, especially the kind of smaller companies, protect themselves against this? So I think one piece of advice I have for smaller companies is first, before you use AI in your company, make sure that it's actually something that you want to use. Because a lot of people think AI is something that's magical and it's just a miracle and it can solve all the problems. But AI does have many flaws, many security flaws, and we will always need humans to evaluate the results of AI and machine learning. So if you are deploying machine learning, like a bank to detect credit card fraud or to detect a check, then make sure you have humans to verify this this transaction or this data, because otherwise people can get away with all of these different attacks. And then also another piece of advice is to definitely educate your employees on that these attacks can happen on these different security uh, threats because a lot of people don't realize that adversarial machine learning exists or that there are attacks to AI. So definitely educating your employees on the risks is very important. And then I think for larger companies or companies that are using AI already, I would definitely recommend investing in machine learning to defend against these kinds of attacks. Because yes, there are some security threats against AI, right? Adversarial machine learning. But you can also use AI and machine learning to defend against these attacks. And and so machine learning is not always bad. It can actually be used in many good scenarios to defend against these attacks. For example, maybe that bank that I told you about, maybe they could have a machine learning model and train it on these kinds of attacks, like changing the check, the number, the amount, and train that machine learning model on that. And then it can detect that automatically and say, okay, I've seen this pattern. I know that this is an attack. This looks suspicious. Let me alert 
um, the analyst at the bank, for example. What's interesting to me there is that the common thread throughout what you've just said is people. So, you know, training people to understand having the right people on your team to be able to choose the right tools and to implement them and be there in case something goes wrong. And and that's one of the reasons why this podcast is called Talent First is because when it comes to technology, I, I think that's absolutely crucial. So that's just, I just picked up on a really interesting thread all the way through. So my next question kind of veers away from that a little bit, and that's looking more at kind of AI generally. And um, when we first had a, a chat, I asked you this question because I am truly fascinated and especially in my role in recruitment as well. Um, and that's AI and jobs. So obviously there is, I'm not going to say hysteria, but there are some dramatic um, conversations going on about AI is going to take all of our jobs. And then there's the other conversation where AI is actually going to create work. I don't know what your stance is on that. What do you think about that? So I think in the short term, AI might be taking away some jobs, but then in the longer term, I think that there's hope that AI is actually going to create more jobs than it is taking away in the long term. So I know that everyone's really scared of AI right now, that it's going to take away all of our jobs. But actually, if you think about it, just think of this as another industrial innovation. So initially, we used to have typewriters. Now we have computers. Initially, there used to be you know, typist people who would use the typewriter for you. And now we have computers. We don't need we don't need to go and get, get something typed out. We can just do it on our own in Microsoft Word or Office, you know. So we just need to realize that AI is just another type of innovation. It's not, it's not something that's going to be dramatically disruptive and take away everyone's job. Because like I said, we ultimately need people to evaluate these AI models. We can't just rely on AI to be able to do everything itself. We need people to analyze the models. We need people for jobs like prompt engineering. I know everyone's heard of prompt engineering now. So AI is definitely creating a lot of these jobs. And I think as more and more companies start to use AI, we're going to need more and more people to work on verifying these models, working with these models, deploying these models, testing these models. So I think overall there is hope um, AI will create more jobs. I guess the thing that um, concerns me is that it might be those entry-level roles that are usurped by AI. Like you, you mentioned, you know, there used to be typing pools. So back in the day, there'd be rows and rows of women, predominantly, who would just sit typing documents all day and then obviously we had the computer and you didn't really have to be a specialist in typing anymore so those people would have been made redundant and so on so I guess my concern with AI is that it's going to be yeah those entry-level tasks that can be covered by AI and also those kind of repetitive admin-y kind of jobs as well that AI may eventually be able to just do without human input I mean, I don't know. Am I on the right track there, or, or you know? So I think, I think, yeah. I mean, people are using ChatGPT for admin type work, like creating calendars or schedules. But actually, generative AI has many flaws. It's still not there yet, where it could replace a human. And and I don't see, at least within the next twenty years, that it would get to that level of replacing a human um, with a lot of these tasks. And 
yes, at the entry level, some roles might be impacted, but I think overall there will be new entry level roles that will be created in its place. So for example, prompt engineering is an entry level role that people are now advertising for is how do we send prompts to chat GPT or to generative AI? So I think maybe entry level roles might change, but I don't think they're going away because I think we'll always need entry level roles and we always need to train the next generation in order to continue to progress the field, right? We can't just leave the younger generation behind and expect everything to work out when everyone else retires. I had an interesting conversation with somebody the other day that said that the next degree that is going to be really important is a degree in philosophy because you've got to know how to ask good questions in order to, you know, construct prompts. And I just thought that was a really fascinating point that that's what's going to be really important is knowing the right questions to ask and how to word them. Because, you know, if you use something like ChatGPT, if you don't ask the right prompt, you just get a load of nonsense back and, you know, you have to keep asking and asking and asking. So I just thought that was a really interesting point. I mean, where do you see in the, um, I know I'm asking you a lot of bonus questions here, but I do, I do find the whole thing fascinating. I mean, AI has come on so rapidly in the last five to 10 years. In the immediate future, where do you see AI heading? I think AI is going to be continuously adopted by businesses. I think people are still going to follow the hype and try to implement AI wherever they can. And so I think in the short term, we might see this increase of AI type startups and AI companies and people announcing that they have their next co-pilot or chat GPT. So I think initially we might see this rise in generative AI and everyone wants to know about generative AI. But I think in the long term, I don't see it constantly being something that we are going to keep talking about generative AI because there's a lot more to AI than just generative AI. But people don't really realize that because generative AI was really the first time AI was introduced to the public. So that's that's kind of why everyone's talking about generative AI now. But AI is really everywhere, even if people have not realized it. Even when you're, you know, sending sending a chatbot message to your local bank, that's AI. When you use Google or Netflix and you search for something and it gives you recommendations back as you might like watching this, that's also AI. So I think AI is going to be continuously adopted uh, by businesses. And I I don't think that's going away. But it is really interesting you mentioned the philosophy degree. So I do agree with you. I think we need more people that can think critically So there is definitely importance of having a liberal arts education. We need people to think critically, to ask the right questions, to be able to analyze different viewpoints, not to just blindly follow the technology, right? We need people to ask these questions, think think critically, analyze. And we even use that those skill sets in security research when we're looking at what are the different ways AI could be attacked. We have to ask all those questions. Could this happen, this happen, this happen? Yeah, that creativity with uh, with technology, I think, is something that can be overlooked sometimes as well and, and you know, not really thought about. But yeah, I completely agree with you. And I also agree with the point that you made previously about organisations adopting AI and not just to jump on the generative AI bandwagon and actually use products that are going to be supportive of your 
bowls and benches and so on and not just picking a product that everybody's using so we should be too because it could end up being incredibly expensive and a total waste of time so I think auditing the products that you already use and auditing the people that you have as well is going to be crucial if you're going to implement those AI products so I just want to go back to that as well I just think that's a really important point that you made so we've talked a bit about, you know, a couple of myths about AI, about job creation or reduction and so on. Are there any other myths about AI that you would like to dispel? I think another myth about AI is that only big businesses are using AI. So people, yes, AI is expensive, but I think even smaller businesses can benefit from AI as well, not just the big businesses. When we're talking about making employees more productive, to automate some of the tasks, even smaller businesses can benefit from that. And I already kind of touched on this about AI being a magical solution, but I think that's really a myth I want to highlight is that AI is not a magical solution. Think of AI as just another tool. AI is just a tool. It's not, it's not something that's magical and that will give you the right answer right away. Just think of it as a tool that helps you analyze a lot of data in a way that humans might not be able to manually analyze. So AI is really good for analyzing maybe millions of records. In a way, you know, humans, we just can't see those kinds of patterns always, right? So in that way, AI is useful. But I, I think definitely before anyone is considering using AI, first think about, is this problem worth using AI for? Does the benefit outweigh the cost? Because AI can be very expensive. And then also make sure that you're using it as a tool to analyze all of this data that you have. If you don't have, if you only have 10 pictures, you can't possibly expect AI to work for that problem. You need a lot of data for AI, not just 10 pictures. So I think definitely be cautious before you use AI. So it does have many benefits, but you also need to make sure you're using it to solve the right problems. What part do you think that another thing that really interests me about AI is social engineering because it's becoming so sophisticated, so difficult to spot. And, and you know, like we've already alluded to, it doesn't have to be, you know, particularly, I mean, that you know, it, 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 con men at the end of the day, the people that are, you know, manipulating others. So it doesn't have to be particularly sophisticated in the, in the way that it's being done. So what would you what would you say is the future of AI and social engineering? You know, how clever can it get? I think that is definitely a concern. So people are now starting to use AI to craft their own attacks. We heard recently about someone being able to call um, a family member and, and demand money. And the voice sounded just like the family member's voice. So they were able to use AI to basically use a more sophisticated uh, scam call, right? So we can even copy the voice of someone, we can mimic the voice, and then it's easy for us to get tricked by that because, oh, that sounds just like my family member. Yeah, they might need my help. They need money right now. Let me help them. And I think also they're using generative AI now to create more sophisticated phishing emails, which again is kind of social engineering as well. You could use generative AI to basically craft a phishing email that doesn't look as suspicious. Initially, email services like Gmail, Outlook, they can easily quarantine all these spam emails because they have certain 
characteristics that are common. So example is misspelled words, typos, grammar errors, emojis. Those features might make it very easy for you to see that's a spam email, that's a phishing email, and maybe the link looks obviously very suspicious right away. So you can know that I shouldn't click on that link. But now with generative AI, it's definitely crafted much better. There's no more uh, grammar errors or spelling errors. And you can even look at the link and it looks very, very similar to a legitimate link. Maybe I saw on LinkedIn the other day, this company has a certain name and the phishing emails and the impersonation was actually happening with a link that was basically exactly the same company name, except you add an S at the end. So the name ended with the word hill. And what what they did was they just added an S. So it's hills instead of hill. And so these changes can definitely make it much easier for people to be caught off guard and to click on the phishing email. And I think to actually solve these challenges, we, we need to, again, educate employees that this is happening at one of the places I work at. They actually have a gaming scenario. So they actually send you phishing training emails. And now they're getting more challenging with that. And you have to click on whether it's a phishing email or not. And then you report it. And then it explains the different ways and the different techniques that they're using. So I think that's an option organizations can use is gamify the phishing emails and provide training to the employees. And also just having seminars and educating people, not just your employees, but the general public that this is happening because none of us are immune to these attacks. Everyone, everyone could be sent these attacks. Even, you know, your grandparents could be sent these attacks. So definitely educating the general public as well is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do still think there's a contingent of people who think it will never happen to them. Right. Um, You know, regardless of whether they're in business or just, you know, the general public, I I still do think there are people that think it's just something that happens to other people and don't realise how accessible their data is. I mean, there are two things there that you just talked about. Deepfake technology absolutely terrifies me. And the reason is, is that I have a daughter. And so we have a password. And so I know that if I get a call that sounds like her and I'm in trouble, I need money, mummy, you know, I can say to her, what's the password? And if you can't tell me, put the phone straight down. But then I was talking to somebody who said, well, do all of your family members know the password? <laughs> they don't. So she phoned granny, granddad, whatever, you know, and said, I need money. My dad, I probably shouldn't say this in a podcast, but my dad would, but he's be how much, <laughs> you know, he'd just be giving all of those bank details because it's his granddaughter, you know? So that, yeah, that I find that very scary. And business email compromises, another thing that I just think is, um, we know that we shouldn't be clicking on suspicious links. We shouldn't be downloading PDFs if we're not too sure. We shouldn't be clicking on images. But when you've got 30,000 other things to do in the in the working day, somebody sends you an email, it really looks like it's your CFO or whatever. And so you click on the PDF, you know, can you just check these figures? It's just so easy done. And although we know that we shouldn't do it, if you're really busy, it's really difficult to just spend that extra time making sure that everything's as it should be so that's another thing that and again a very simple way of accessing an awful lot of data very quickly so those are two things that are just um yeah really scary to me and I'm interested to see 
where that goes and how more people are going to be impacted by that as well. What are your recommendations then for young people? I'm having this conversation a lot at the moment about young people wanting to get into cybersecurity careers and but also AI careers as well. What would be your advice for them? Yeah, so actually for young people, I think my first piece of advice is to follow your interests and your passions. It's very easy, especially as young people, to compare ourselves to other people and say, oh, this person we saw on LinkedIn, they they followed X, Y, and Z path. Maybe I should do the same thing. But I think you should say true to yourself. If you don't like the idea of cybersecurity, then then don't pursue a cybersecurity career. If you don't like the idea of AI, you don't like the idea of working with AI or machine learning, then then don't force yourself to do something you don't like doing. So I think that's definitely my first piece of advice. And now once you've realized you're interested in the field, I think my advice to young people is to take all these online courses, all of the free online courses that you can. There are YouTube videos popping up every day teaching you, here's how you do prompt engineering. Here's how you study AI. These are the basics of machine learning. These are the basic concepts in cybersecurity. So I definitely recommend young people to first evaluate what interests you and then figure out what are you interested in and watch YouTube videos, do Coursera courses or any other online free class before investing more time into the field. And then finally, I recommend getting mentors. So there are a lot of outreach organizations that provide mentoring programs for young people, for women, for minorities. So I recommend joining these organizations. And even being a mentor yourself is very useful. So um, for example, college students, not only can they be mentees, but they could also mentor high school students. And high school students, in case any high school students are listening to this, high school students can also be mentored by college students. And I actually interacted with a few high school students the other day, and they have local meetups that they're inviting these high school students to, like women in security. And this high school student, she's just in high school, 11th grade, right? And she was able to interact with all these different cybersecurity professionals just by showing an interest in it. And it's completely free for her. So I recommend not only studying on your own, but also reach out to the community. You can even reach out to people on LinkedIn and say, I'm really interested in your field. I would really like to learn more from you. And I've actually done that for a few high school students. They just reach out to me and say, I'm really interested in AI. I would like to schedule a time to chat. Let me know when you're free. I would really appreciate your time. And and so I think that's another piece of advice I have for young people is it's don't be scared of the community. There are a lot of people that want to help you. You just have to show that you are interested and, and people will help you. Absolutely. I have to say that the cybersecurity community in terms of mentoring is phenomenal, especially on LinkedIn. Let's say that you're even kind of 15, 16 years old. Don't be afraid to go on there and and ask questions. The worst that can happen is that somebody will turn around and say, I'm sorry, I don't have time. You've not lost anything. And there are, you know, obviously LinkedIn communities that you can join as well. You can look at the advice given there. And also just be really aware that cybersecurity doesn't begin and end with hacking. There's a spectrum 
of careers within cybersecurity. And like you say, the best thing to do is investigate all of them. You know, are you red team? Are you blue team? Do you want to be an architect? Do you want to go down the no code? You know, what is it that you want to do? Um, rather than saying, I want to work in cybersecurity, because that doesn't really mean anything. It's so huge, isn't it? And then you can pick your mentors and so on. But I completely agree with what you said about don't be afraid to ask, um, because you, you never know. And network and be interested in people. Don't just go straight on there and go, I have a question. <laughs> just, you know, warm them up a little bit first and and then, you know, read what they have to say. And I, I just think that's really important. So I completely agree. So what's next for you? I know you've got some really exciting things happening and some talks and presentations that you are giving. So tell us what's next for you in your career. I'm really excited to see how technology evolves. So I work in 5G and 6G research and 6G isn't coming out until 2030. So I'm really excited to see how all this technology is evolving. You know, one thing we're looking at is the metaverse and virtual reality and seeing about any security implications that could happen in the metaverse. So I'm definitely excited about that. And I, I see myself continuing to give talks and presentations at all these different conferences. And I always update on LinkedIn. So um, in April, I'll be at Hackspace Con. That's, that's one conference I'm speaking at. And then in March, I'll be at Sunshine Cyber Conference, which is in Tampa, Florida. But I'm I'm really excited to see what the future holds. You know, technology is, is really exciting. We always have to learn new things and it's really exciting to see the progress. And look, your future is incredibly bright and I'm always, you know, very eager to speak to younger people in the profession as well, just to see where, where, where the industry is going and you're phenomenally talented. So I'm sure that you are going to go leaps and bounds so thank you so much for talking to me I've learned an awful lot I've still got an awful lot to learn <laughs> but I, that this whole thing is look scary but fascinating and like you say it's not all doom and gloom there are great things coming out of AI and generative AI as well so thank you so much for your time